And if you would get out your copies of God's Word that you have with you this morning and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We are coming here to the last week of Jesus' life. Usually referred to in church services as the Passion Week. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus' arrest. Verses 47 through 53. So let's read this together and listen carefully because this is the word of God that he has for you today. While he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the, to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our Lord, and ask his blessing on our text before us. Oh, Lord Christ, we have this wonderful text in front of us, a text that gives us much comfort, encouragement, and challenge. And I pray that we would see this passage for what it is, help our hearts to be open to it, help our minds to be active, to be soaked in it, And may we use our bodies to obey it. I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, I've got to take care of an enemy? We hear that phrase spoken without context, or perhaps an Italian accent. We would assume that there is damage that is about to be done. I can say that because my family has Italian heritage. So. This is what we do with enemies. We take care of them. We get rid of them. We find some way of rendering them powerless because this is what the world tells us to do. The best defense, we're told, is a smashing offense, one that can strike first and harder and, de- and definitively so that one does not have to deal with this kind of trouble anymore. This would seem to be how things seem to be working in the geopolitical world that we see around us today. Looking over into the situation in Russia and Ukraine, it seems like the fate of countries are being held by seven people, one of whom has a lot of tanks that they want to try out. And it would seem to be that the one who wins in these conflicts is the one who can strike with the most power. And we're used to that. We're so used to it, in fact, that we bring that sort of approach into our day-to-day lives. We fight battles in our office cubicles, or perhaps even in our own living rooms. 
So we look to the other and say, we need to take care of this and crush this threat before it can hurt me. This can be done actively through slamming doors and raised voices. Or it can be done passive-aggressively with silent treatments and other modes of power struggle. But how does Jesus treat his enemies? What does Jesus do in this passage? This really does give us a unique insight into how Jesus operates in this way. In fact, when we come to this passage of Scripture, when we come to really any passage of Scripture, it's a great practice to ask, why is this here? Parchment was expensive. Luke couldn't go down to his local office depot and just pick up more. This was something that was a rare resource that needed to be used carefully. So things were included because they needed to be included. And if we're to look at this narrative, we would assume that a lot of this is unnecessary, at first glance anyway. All we need to get to really is verse 48. We say, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And we could almost drop to verse 54 where it says, then they seized him and led him away. It would seem from a narrative perspective we would have all that we would need. But we would miss something. We would miss how Jesus faces trouble when it's there. We saw last week that Jesus was distressed in his soul even to the point of death. And we might think that when trial finally comes, saying, not my will but yours be done, is one thing on your knees in a garden, but it's quite something else when there's flaming torches and glittering swords standing in front of you. How does Jesus react here? Does he give chase? Does he have his disciples fight for him? Does he give one last chance to try to run away from this calling that God has given to him? Or does he face it with boldness? That's what we have a chance to take a look at today. How does Jesus take care of his enemies? We can see he heals them, shows them grace and mercy. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and this is a real challenge to us to how we treat opposition. But we cannot, even as we've looked at all of that, we can't leave behind the idea of who Christ's enemies are. And we cannot escape the fact that at least at one point, we were his enemies as well. We have far more in common with the people bearing the swords and the clubs than we do Jesus, especially prior to conversion. When Jesus is doing this for his enemies, he was doing this for us as well. He died while we were yet sinners, while we were yet opposed to God. He died for us. We must keep that in mind as we're going through this passage today. And as we look at our two points today, as you can see in your outline on the back of the prayer guide. First point is that evil is cowardly. And only as powerful as God allows. Evil is cowardly and only as powerful as God allows. And then secondly, that Jesus faces arrest with bravery and grace for his enemies. And we'll be looking at all those implications. So we'll start first, that evil is cowardly and only as powerful as God allows. Here, the, the passage opens with Jesus still speaking. If we look back one verse, we can see what he was saying. And he's telling his disciples, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
We saw last week that temptation can also mean uh, a testing of some kind, a trial that's about to take place. And we can see what this trial is. No sooner does Jesus finish speaking these words that the test comes. Here comes Judas. And we can see the pain that's in this opening line. Judas, one of the twelve. Luke always seems to take every opportunity to mention that. That this was one of the people that had followed Jesus for his whole ministry. A hand-picked man to be a part of Jesus' emissaries to the world. To bring the gospel. It's one of those twelve that's coming to betray him. And then he has made an arrangement, as we can see in other gospel reports of this, that he is going to tell the other soldiers who are there who it is that we're supposed to arrest by a kiss. A kiss at that time would have been a lot like the way that we, that we would associate a hug today. It was a sign of affection, but also of respect. It would be of teachers who would be either kiss the hand or kiss of the cheek, which really makes this betrayal all the more of a twisting of the knife. It's one thing to stand out in the open and point with an accusing finger and saying, this is the one you're supposed to arrest. And it's another thing to do so with affection. That's a slap. That's hypocrisy. But maybe, perhaps, and Scripture doesn't give any reason for the motive of why Judas picks this particular sign instead of something else, but I can't help but wonder, and this is speculation, I can't help but wonder if perhaps this is some other means of cowardice, that here Judas is maybe trying to hide, hide from the other disciples and not taking a bold stance in front of everybody that he is the betrayer. Perhaps he's going to come up and give him a kiss and then maybe he can blame the Roman soldiers after that. Maybe he thinks that he can fool Jesus. I don't know. But what I do know is that evil is quite cowardly. We tend to think of evil as being bold, but it isn't. This is actually quite cowardly. We can see this even with the um, people themselves as they've come out to arrest Jesus. They're doing so at night. They're doing so on a mountaintop, away from the crowds. We've seen in earlier passages in Luke, like in Luke 19, where he's preaching in the temple, In verse 47, it says that the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they could not find anything they could do because the people were hanging on his words. They'd want to arrest the most popular man in town. That's how you become the unpopular people in town. They don't want that. Or in Luke 22, uh, they were in verse, verse 2, they were seeking how to put him to death for they feared They fear the people. Evil is only bold when it thinks it's already won. When it's ready to come out and be a part of the cultures because it believes it's not going to find any resistance to it. That's what we find here today. Evil is content to be in the corner away from everybody else until it feels like it won't have any opposition. So it comes and it comes out and it's bold with it. And that's what we see here today. Notice how Jesus reacts. He says that you would betray the Son of Man. 
Here, Jesus is what we just looked at in Daniel chapter 7 of what sort of kingdom this person is going to have. And here, Judas decides to betray Jesus. He thinks he's already won in some way. But of course, he hasn't. Sometimes we can find a similarity here with Judas as well. It's easy for us to hide our sin. And we're only out with it when we don't feel like we're not, we're, we're not going to face any consequences for it. And we put on a mask when we're in one group of company, but we pull down the mask when we're away. This is something that is unfortunately the case in a lot of American churches these days. Of wanting to put on one face for everybody else. Ascribe lip service to what we're supposed to say and do. We live a very different way Monday through Saturday. This is what Judas does here. A literal lip service, if you want. But his heart is far from him. Here, they've, this group of people have come out to arrest him. And, but notice what Jesus says. They think that they've won, but look how he frames it. It says in verse 53, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. They didn't think they could win at that time. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, cowardly, and can do no more than God allows. I remember there was this uh, commercial I saw when I was a kid. It was advertising a new technology for a car. You would be able to press the little button on your key ring, and it would start up the car's engine from a distance. And uh, the ad opens with this little kid in a Darth Vader outfit who is motioning towards various things throughout the house and trying to move them with his mind or cause some sort of effect on them. And he was powerless with every little gesture that he had toward the fish tank and towards the, the, the ceiling fan. None of those things would seem to obey his commands. And he waltzes out into the driveway to see his father's new car. And once again, put forth his hand in an effort to try to control the car. And the car starts up, much to his amazement and delight, as he staggers back, wondering what it is he's just done. Of course, the camera cuts to a smiling father with a remote in his hand in the kitchen window who has started up the car from a distance. That's a lot like what we see with these people here. The little kid believed he had power. But the only reason why anything happened in response to his gesture is because there was someone else working a power behind the scenes. Someone else was actually possessed all the power. The other one just happened to gesture at the right moment. I think this is something that we could apply pretty easily to today. There are a lot of people running around that seem to have a lot of power today. We look into the white marbled halls of Washington, D.C., and it seems like these people have a lot of power. Or we can look and see what's happening up in Canada with the freezing of bank accounts and pursual of people involved in protest. We look all over the world or what we see in Russia and the Ukraine. And we can get understandably a little scared because it seems like these people have a lot of power. They're gesturing towards something and something changes. But if there's anything we can pick up from this passage, all these people that seem to wield all this power are just little kids in Darth Vader outfits. It seems like there's something happening in response to what they're doing. But they can do nothing without 
God's power. Without God's explicit permission, none of these people can do anything. That's what Jesus affirms here. This is your hour. Judas hasn't gotten the drop on Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes have not figured out the weakness in the Almighty. Instead, they have been given this opportunity to advance God's purposes. God is not taking a loss here with the idea that I'll take a win over here. I'll lose the battle and win the war. No, God wins every single battle and wins the war. It just looks like there have been a loss here and there. It's to get everybody else to play along. But God is winning at every single step of this. Rather than destroying Jesus, they're playing right into the plan that Christ had always had for himself. Evil is cowardly and is only as powerful as God allows it to be. It's very comforting. But now we can see, as we look back into the middle section, we've kind of taken a look at the beginning and the end of this passage, and let's take a look at the middle. Let's see how Jesus faces arrest with bravery and grace for his enemies. Now, some might question my use of the term brave or courageous, because we know that the term bravery or courageous would mean that someone is fearing of something, but yet does it anyway. Bravery and courage, despite common misconceptions, does not mean that you don't have any fear. It means that you're conquering this fear. Now, are we able to say, well, Jesus knows that he's going to be resurrected. He knows that this is all going according to plan. Is Jesus really qualifying for brave if he knows how it's all going to end? I think the answer is yes, because we look and look back at the Mount of Olives. Just because he knows how this is going to end, it does not mean this is going to be pleasant for Jesus to experience. Jesus has been sweating profusely because he is about to face the wrath of God. Yes, he knows he's going to be resurrected because he's prophesied it many times. But he is still facing this with bravery because he knows what is to come. And we can see the contrast in what Jesus is doing versus what the disciples are doing. As we see their response, they can look ahead and they can see that Jesus is about to be arrested. And to their credit, they ask Jesus what they should do. And they said, shall we strike with the sword? As they remember from a few passages ago, and they were sitting at dinner, that Jesus was saying, the one who doesn't have a sword, buy a cloak and, or, or sell your cloak and buy a sword. The disciples, of course, misunderstood this in thinking that he meant that they needed to acquire physical weapons instead of just being prepared for the trials that come through prayer. So they pull out the sword and said, all right, is this the moment? And while they get points for asking, they lose points for not waiting for the answer. As Peter quickly unsheathes his sword and strikes forward in what one commentator described as a pathetic attempt, because all he managed to do was slice off an ear. This is what happens when we wildly take matters into our own hands and don't wait for what Jesus would actually have us do. That's why Christ stops Peter from doing any further minor damage. And in a detail that's unique to Luke, he heals the servant's ear, undoes the damage that Peter has done. 
showing this was not the approach you were supposed to take at all. I like how one commentator had described this scene. While we have not, hopefully, have not swung swords at each other for those that we disagree with, there are a lot of other, shall we say, subtle ways of making the same mistake. One commentator put it this way. It says that we cannot fight Satan's minions with Satan's tactics. When we strike forward with violent aggression, that is a satanic tactic. And that's not how we're going to do the Lord's will. We don't do the Lord's will with, by underhanded means. We trust the Lord to operate through holy means. And this is what we see here. This is something that takes a great deal of trust. Because it seems like the rest of the world has the upper hand. Because they have no qualms about using underhanded means to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And they seem like they work. People who hide taxes from the government seem to have more money than those that are honest with it. Those who are willing to lie, kill, and destroy seem to have the corner offices versus those that want to do things correctly. We can even see here that the very means that Jesus has given to us to transform the world. Do we use market strategies? Do we use things to try to enliven up the gospel? No. The Lord's given us a book, a very old book, and has told us to go and proclaim this same story using unremarkable people to take the gospel to the world. That just doesn't seem very like it's going to be, it doesn't seem like it's going to work. And that's precisely the reason why it does. Because we're not asked to be given things that are powerful in men's eyes. We're given something that's powerful because God is involved. And this is what Jesus does. Standing there and being willing to be arrested doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But this is what God has called Jesus to do in this moment. And so it is the most effective thing that he could do. Now, does this mean that we as Christians become doormats and just whatever happens in life, just roll with the punches and deal with it with what comes? No, it's not necessarily what I'm saying here. Jesus has used every holy means that he can to avoid what he has here. He prays to his father and says, is there any other way? And the father says, no. There was no holy means of resistance in this moment. So Jesus, following that plan, takes that moment. There are other places, like we see later on in Acts, where they're told with the disciples, if you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next. They had a holy opportunity, a holy means in their tool belt to deal with what was in front of them. And Christ calls us to the same. If you're stuck in an abusive relationship, we have the the Lord gives opportunities both through secular and through church means of being delivered from that. It's not an unholy thing to do at all. When Christ gives us that opportunity, we take it. But if the only way out of your situation is to lie, cheat, and steal, that's not a holy way out. And instead, we trust in what the Lord has called us to do. 
Again, it doesn't look like this is a really powerful thing. This looks contrary to everything that the society tells us to do. But this is what Jesus calls us to. And instead of resisting or dropping everybody that could be there, slaying them all with a word of his power, instead he provides healing for them. That's someone who really has a grasp on how powerful God is. He's able to be kind to the people that are arresting him. Because he knows that all those people are under God's power too. If we are ever called to live in a time where we are to find persecution for ourselves, maybe this will come in the form of governmental oppression. Perhaps it comes in the form of an office or perhaps it comes in the form of a family member. Whatever that looks like, if there is no other holy means of escape, then we're called to look to Christ. We're called to look to him and to be kind, praying for our persecutors. Be good to those who hate you. Because this is what Christ has done for us. Indeed, as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot in common with that crowd. Jesus endures all of this because he's saving us, his enemies, and was kind to us, though we've done nothing to deserve it. So we're called to show that same grace to others. What this looks like is going to be different in situation to situation. There are areas of wisdom to look into. But that's our, should be our knee-jerk reaction. to say, God is in control of this. God is in control of this government or this person. With no other holy means of escape, I will be kind. I will show grace because I've been shown grace. I've been shown mercy. Christ has done this for me. So what's our takeaway from this passage? Well, one of these takeaways is that we don't have to fear. Jesus is very confident in what the Father has planned. So he doesn't have to fear. So he doesn't have to look at that ear and says like, "Well, you shouldn't have been here arresting me, so you're just lost that ear." No. He reaches out with grace and heals as he can. We don't need to fear either. Christ has all of the world's problems on a leash, and they can go no further than he allows. And I think our second takeaway, and again, what should be our main focus, is that we have been shown much grace. So that if we do come across a situation like this, we are able to remember that we've been shown this. And use this as as the means where we can be strengthened to follow after what Christ calls us to do. And to proclaim this gospel to others. A gospel that calls us to, to love. A chance to show grace. Does it mean we don't confront error when it's there? Does it mean that we don't confront sin when it needs to be? Oftentimes our culture has, has equated love and kindness with lying. That's not what we do. We give people the ultimate goodness, which is giving people the gospel, making sure that they understand that, believe that. And if they continue to resist in those efforts, well, we don't pull out our swords, but instead we get out our towels 
And we serve and are kind because we have been shown such mercy. And one day, we will get to look to heaven, see him seated on his throne and say, he has indeed taken care of his enemies, hasn't he? Because I am standing here today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for showing grace in the garden and showing grace in our lives as well. I pray that you would help us to use your tactics to serve your purposes. And I pray that you would give us the boldness to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us. Because one day we will look and see you on that throne of all the nations of the world bowing before you. Oh, bring this day quickly, Lord Jesus, we ask it. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.